You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Matthew chapter 16, and tonight we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 16, and we read beginning with verse 1. The Bible says, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and testing him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. And coming to the other side of the sea, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now they began to discuss this among themselves, saying, He said that because we did not bring bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand, and how many baskets full you picked up? Or... The seven loaves of the four thousand, and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Let's ask our God's blessing on our time in His Word tonight. We thank You, Lord, for the opportunity to meet together not just once, but twice on this Lord's Day. Each time we have together is sweet to us, it is important for us. And I thank You that You have patience with our weakness, because, Lord, I know there must be times when people wonder whether they should come or not, and then when we leave, we're so thankful that we did, so blessed by the means of grace that you've ordained for the good of our souls. Thank you, Lord, that you don't deal with us according to our weakness, but according to your perfect shepherding of us. Lord, tonight we need your help as we encounter your word again. I need your help as I preach. We need your help as we listen and engage your word in our minds as we think about its meaning and we think about its application to our own lives. We trust and know your Spirit will be at work teaching us. Strengthen us, Lord, to receive in our hearts what you've given to us in the text of your Holy Word. May tonight be a blessing to your people, an encouragement, an edifying instrument in your hand. And again, Lord, as always, we ask that if there are those hearing me who don't know your Son, we ask that you would save, as has already been voiced in prayer tonight. We love you, Lord, and thank you that we do. Your love preceded ours. You loved us, therefore we love you. And for this we are grateful not just tonight, but for forever. 
We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Faithful discipleship includes warning. If we are faithfully discipling another person, if we are faithfully shepherding someone else, then we don't just encourage them. We don't just remind them of the things that we've been given that we must believe. We're also careful to warn them about what would spiritually sidetrack them. We do this because there will certainly be spiritual threats in this world in which we're living. The testing of our faith certainly comes. And so one task of discipleship, one task of shepherding is to prepare people for that day of testing, for those moments of testing. And as we do that, we need to be discerning about what people might be especially vulnerable to. You know, if you're spending time with someone, if you're discipling them, shepherding them, such as the elders have been given the responsibility to do here, you get to know people. And as you get to know them, you recognize not only their strong points, but their potentially weak points. And that's what our Lord is doing here with His disciples. He is warning them. And I think it has to do with something He also discerns might be a special weakness in their lives. The recognized spiritual leadership of Israel was dangerous. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, these are not good men who are just a little misguided. These are serpents. These are, as Jesus referred to them in John the Baptist, this is a brood of vipers. Wicked men who were blind guides of the blind. Jesus referred to them as children of hell. Matthew 23, 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. You are children of hell. But they were influential men. They were externally impressive men. They carried themselves in a way they were afforded a sense of authority that made them especially dangerous men. Do you recognize that we're living in a world full of spiritually dangerous people? I mean, they represent a spiritually dangerous influence. Men and women who are spiritually dangerous, perceived as spiritual leaders, they might have a lot of influence, especially in this age of imagined digital shepherding. They may have a YouTube channel. They may have a Twitter feed. They may have other means of getting out their message, maybe even on television or the radio. Might be very charismatic, might be impressive by human standards. But they are clouds without water. Impressive to men, but not impressive to God. And just as our Lord warned His disciples about spiritually dangerous men in their day, we are tasked as shepherds, we are tasked as a faithful church to warn people about the spiritually dangerous false shepherds of our day. That's what we consider tonight. We consider teaching that we are to beware, teaching that we are to beware. We'll get these verses under three headings, then I have five points of application as we finish. 
First thing I want you to notice is we see in verse 1 a delegation from the enemy. Or you could say using our Lord's description of them in Matthew 23, a delegation from hell. Verse 1, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came and testing him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Here is another delegation. You notice they're increasing in frequency. At the beginning of chapter 15, just flip back one chapter, verse 1, then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Here we have another delegation. Why? Well, because they recognize Jesus as a problem for them. They are increasingly concerned about his influence. The people we meet with in chapter 16 probably represent the Sanhedrin, where you would find Pharisees and Sadducees working together, the Supreme Court, as it were, for the Jewish people. Just a quick side note, hatred for God makes for strange friendships. Pharisees and Sadducees were not theological friends, but they found their common ground in their hatred for Jesus. They found their common ground in their hatred for the truth. James Montgomery Boyce commented, he said, this was an odd combination of forces. For the Pharisees and Sadducees held different views and were rivals and antagonists in the leadership of Israel. The Pharisees' very name means separated, and they separated themselves by strict observance of the law and traditions of Israel. They were the most spiritual people of the time, although their zeal for the law drew them into legalism and a sad preoccupation with minutia, which Jesus condemned, they nevertheless believed in all the right things. A supernatural written revelation from God, our Old Testament, miracles, the coming of the Messiah, the resurrection, and a final judgment at the end of time. The Sadducees were modernists. They did not believe in miracles, and although they looked for a Messiah, the Messiah they looked for was no more than an effective political leader. They were really politicians themselves, and their policy was to collaborate with and support whatever government happened to be in power at the time. So you have political pragmatists and you have theological separatists. These are not natural friends. They are natural enemies, but they come together to test Jesus. They find common ground in their hatred for the truth. They asked Jesus to show them a sign from heaven. As you know, the, the signs are all over the place to recognize if they're just willing to look. Troublesome for them, in terms of our understanding of them, is that man Nicodemus, who was one of their number, but he was an honest man. And when Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, he says, we know that you're from God. Because no one could do the things you do unless God was with him. Nicodemus could see. But these men belong to a group that exists to this very day. A group which says, we've just not yet seen enough evidence. If you would give us just a little more evidence, if you would give us something we just cannot deny, then we will believe. But as you know... You can never give that kind of person enough evidence. It's unbelief looking for justification. It's not a willingness to believe. It is an unwillingness to believe. And it cloaks its unbelief 
in demands for signs. Give me something that I can't deny. Give me something that will convince me when in truth there is nothing that will convince them. So we see a delegation from the enemies. Second, notice the answer from God. Verse 2, but he replied to them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. How does Jesus respond to their test? He tells them, you are spiritually dull. You are blind. Here's what you're able to do. You're able to tell the weather. And it's interesting to me, the illustration that he uses, he uses an illustration that has them looking into the heavens. You ask for a sign from heaven. Well, you have the ability to look into the heavens and recognize if there's going to be stormy weather or a lovely evening. Sometimes a red sky can mean fair weather. Sometimes it's red and threatening. You know the difference. You have the eyes to see the signs in the sky, but what you cannot discern are the signs that have already come to you from heaven. While you're demanding signs from heaven, you've been given what is sufficient. You just don't want to see it. And the reason, I mean, Jesus doesn't just discern their problem. He explains the source of it. The reason why you keep asking for signs is because you belong to a kind of people. Verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation. It's not that you haven't been given sufficient evidence. It's that you're evil and you're unfaithful to what God has already revealed, to what God has already given you, to what He's already entrusted you with. You've proven yourself unfaithful to the living God. They asked for signs. What a a privileged time they were living in. You do realize, I know you do, that they were witnessing things that the people of God had longed to see for thousands of years. They were hearing things that generations had longed to hear. And they were counting what they were seeing and hearing as if it were nothing. As if it's really not convincing. I mean, you know, blind people seeing, mute people speaking, lame people walking, deformed people whole, Dead people raised in the case of Lazarus, which, you know, they they hear about that miracle and their conclusion is we've got to kill him, speaking of Jesus, before everybody believes in him. Yeah, you're right. There's nothing convincing that's been given to you yet. Why? Because you're evil. That's why. You don't see because you don't want to see. And the reason why you don't want to see is because if you would acknowledge what has been set before your eyes... It would demand your repentance. You would have to turn from your evil. You would have to turn from your spiritual adultery and trust in the one who demands your submission and your devotion at the heart level. And you know this. Men love darkness rather than the light. They would not come to the light lest their evil deeds would be exposed. This is the problem. So, 
Here is what you will be given, verse 4. An evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. What I will promise you is what I already told you before. I mean, this is not the first time they've asked for such a thing. This is not the first time Jesus has given a response to Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes about the need for a sign. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Say, what is that sign? Well, listen. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Here's the sign you're going to be given, the resurrection. Tear down this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And indeed, when Jesus was raised from the dead, it should have secured their faith. But if it didn't secure their faith, it would seal their condemnation. You say you need a sign. Well, how about the resurrection of the one you claim is not the Messiah? That's the sign you're going to be given. So you have this delegation from the enemy testing the Lord Jesus. You have this answer from God. He rebukes them by what they're able to recognize in the natural realm as compared to what they cannot recognize in the spiritual realm, and he traces it to its source, which is you are evil. You're unwilling to see what should be so clear to see. And this is the only sign you're going to have, the sign of my resurrection. And then he leaves into verse 4, and he left them and went away. Which brings us to the third thing we see in the text, and that is now a warning for true disciples, a warning for his men. Verse 5, and coming to the other side of the sea, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread. And Jesus said to them, watch out and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now they began to discuss this among themselves, saying, he said that because we did not bring bread. By the way, Mark tells us they had a little bread, they had one loaf, but they are in a state of panic because they have proven themselves to be irresponsible. They need to make sure that this traveling company has something to eat, and they have failed in that task. They only have one loaf of bread. So that when they hear Jesus talking about leaven, they immediately associate it with what they have forgotten. What Jesus is doing is not talking about bread, as he's going to make clear in just a moment. He's warning his men against a dangerous spiritual influence, and he, and he pictures it like as though it were leaven. You take leaven, you mix it in with the dough, it permeates the mixture. And in Scripture, not always, but oftentimes, leaven is a picture of sin, sinful influence. These teachers, Pharisees, Sadducees, represent a sinful influence, a dangerous influence. For example, in Luke 12, leaven is used to picture hypocrisy. The Bible says in verse 1 of Luke 12, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. 
Paul uses the analogy of leaven to speak of sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 5.1, it is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. As you know, leavened bread was not allowed during the Passover. And so he takes this picture and he says, you've got to get rid of the sin influence in the life of the church in the form of sexual immorality. So the Pharisees, Sadducees represent a kind of teaching, a kind of religion that is a sinful, dangerous influence. And Jesus is warning his men about it. Now, why? Why is he warning the disciples? I mean, they're his disciples. Why is he warning them about the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Could it be that Jesus discerned that his men do not yet recognize how truly dangerous these leaders are? When they hear the difference, they recognize the difference. No doubt Jesus has warned them You remember earlier where they come to the Lord Jesus, he's offended them, talking about their legalism, and they come to Jesus and say, did you know the Pharisees were offended by that? It seems they still have a bit of concern about the viewpoint of the Pharisees, and in this case, the Sadducees, the scribes. Jesus, recognizing this, wants them to understand what kind of men they're actually dealing with. And so he clarifies his warning. He knows they're concerned about bread. So in verses 8 through 11, he clarifies, But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up, or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Several things going on here. First of all, he reproves his disciples for their slowness to perceive. You hear me talk about leaven and immediately your mind goes to bread. And why would he say you have little faith? Well, do they really have reason by this time? Do they have reason to think that not having bread is a problem. He's fed a multitude of 5,000 men besides women and children. They've seen it. He has fed a multitude of 4,000 men besides women and children. They've seen it. Having a lack of bread is not an issue with him. He can take care of them. No, they're dull, you see. They're not picking up on what he's teaching them. This is the pattern we see in this section of Matthew, that our Lord continues 
patiently teaching his men. They are slow to perceive, but he goes on patiently instructing them. It's a good reminder for us that there's a kind of dullness that belongs to lost humanity. He's just rebuked the Pharisees and Sadducees because they can recognize the the skies but can't recognize the signs from heaven. But now he rebukes his own disciples who are believing men, all except Judas, because of what they are slow to perceive. What's the difference? What's the difference between the slowness of a lost man and the slowness of a saved man or woman? The difference is what God has done in our souls that makes us willing to believe. On the one hand, you have men who don't believe, they don't want to believe. They're trying to refuse evidence. They're trying to escape evidence. In the case of God's people, we are willing to believe. It's just that unredeemed humanness that keeps showing up in us. It is what has not yet been glorified that keeps raising its head in us. And sometimes we bear responsibility for that because it has to do with our disobedience or it has to do with our lack of effort in understanding the truth. But the Lord goes on teaching us, doesn't He? He remains patient with us just like He did His men. He goes on bringing us along. And our Father is faithful to discipline us. Every son whom He receives, He disciplines and scourges. The Lord doesn't leave us in our ignorance. We will learn the things He means for us to learn. And if we don't learn it on this side of eternity, we will certainly learn it when we're face to face with our Savior. So he reproves his men, but then he makes it unmistakable. Verse 11, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You see, that's what I'm warning you about, those men. And the disciples get it then, they understand. Verse 12, then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So there's, there's the picture. There's what took place. What do we learn from it? Let me offer a few things. First of all, true disciples cannot be lost through the influence of dangerous teachers, but we can be harmed. True believers cannot be lost through the influence of dangerous men and women, dangerous spiritual influencers, but we can be harmed. Jesus warns his men for good reason. Our God never gives us warnings for for no reason. And it's interesting that that the, the warnings don't just stop with our Lord, do they? You move on to the New Testament epistles and they are full of similar warnings about false doctrine, about false teachers, about false shepherds. The warnings go on and on and on and on. Why? Because the church Though we cannot be separated from the love of God by such influences, we can be spiritually harmed. And the effects are real and the effects are painful. You see it if you pay attention. You see it. You you, you see men and women, you see families that genuinely love Christ, but they have sat under weak teaching for years and it shows up even in their family life. It shows up in marriages. It shows up in how they raise, raise their kids. It shows up in the decisions they make in practical matters in, in, in virtually every realm of life. Doctrine is not just for head knowledge. Doctrine has to do with how we live. And if you sit under diseased teaching, you end up with 
a life that reflects the results of disease. So, true disciples need to understand there's a danger, a real danger, which is why Jesus warns and why good shepherding, good discipleship includes warning about those dangerous influences. Second, dangerous spiritual influence comes both in the form of doctrine and character. You say, how do do I recognize false teachers? How do I recognize these dangerous influences? Will it be in the realm of doctrine or will it be in the realm of character? Answer, both. They are never separated. Hear me again, they are never separated. Where you find bad doctrine, you're going to find bad character. Where you find bad character, you're going to find bad doctrine. Bad character makes room for bad doctrine. And bad doctrine results in bad character. It might not make its appearance at the same time. You might recognize one before you recognize the other, but eventually they are hand in hand. In this case, the disciples recognized Jesus is talking about their teaching, verse 12. They understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. But in other places, as you know, Jesus warned about their character, whitewashed tombs, hypocrites. That has to do with character. Both are joined in the same men. In the case of the Pharisees, their doctrine accorded with their externalism and with their hypocrisy. And those things accorded with their distortion of the law of God. Third lesson. Jesus models for us how shepherding protection functions. He shows us how to protect people we shepherd. He shows us how to protect people we disciple. What does he do? I mean, they just encountered what is a threat. He speaks to them about what threatens them. He recognizes what his men might be susceptible to. And then he endures with their immaturity and continues to teach them and spend time with them. And it's the same with us. Here are the threats. Now listen, when you talk about the threats, you have several basic things you find in Scripture that then wear a multitude of different masks. This is why the best way you'll ever prepare people to not be influenced by bad doctrine is teach them the truth. If you know the truth, now you're prepared to recognize anything that doesn't accord with it. But here are the dangers, which is why I'm talking to you about it, which is why I'm warning you about it. And I might want to zero in on some of these dangers that I find you might be particularly susceptible to. Maybe you're someone highly driven by emotion. And so the people that are very emotional represent a real real threat to you. Or maybe you fancy yourself as an intellectual. And so there are those false teachers that They're very scientific in the way they approach things and very heady in the way they approach things. They might represent a particular danger to you. Maybe you're someone who really loves science, and so here's someone who denies what the Bible says, and they do so in the name of science. And then they try to fit Scripture to match science instead of let the Bible say what it says. Maybe that's a particular danger for you. And we can go on and on about what the various dangers might be. But this is a part of discipleship. You recognize the threats, you identify them, through teaching, and then 
if you see a particular weak spot for the people you're dealing with, you need to prepare them for that by teaching them what the Bible says about those issues. But if you think that shepherding is always received, that discipleship is always believingly responded to, you're going to be a very disappointed disciple maker and a very disappointed shepherd. The fact is, sometimes through tears, you're going to watch people disregard the things you've warned them about and stumble right into the ditch. Which is why what is needed is what you see in our Lord again and again, and that is patience and love and humility. The recognition you know, that every single one of us in many ways is like that sheep. Have you seen the video of that guy who pulls the sheep out of the ditch? Let's it go and it runs and goes right back in the ditch. That's all of us on so many occasions. So you have to have the patience to keep on teaching, keep on seeking, keep on reaching out. You watch the sheep stray, you go get them. You watch fellow believers act in the kind of spiritual stupidity that you often act in. And so with mercy and compassion, considering yourself lest you also be tempted, with humility you address those sin issues, you address those mistaken ideas, and and you, you walk together in a way that recognizes the danger and understands the importance of keeping your feet on the right path. Jesus is the model, isn't he? He is the perfect shepherd, and he shows us how to do that. Fourth thing we recognize here is that we dare not take lightly the true danger of counterfeit spirituality. Now, I know that's basically what I said in the first point, but I want to underscore it. It's true you can't be lost, but you can be harmed. And if you understand you can be harmed, then you don't take that lightly. So that when the shepherds of your church, with Scripture in hand, are warning you about certain things, listen. I mean, that's what wisdom does. You recognize they have a God-given responsibility, Hebrews 13, 17, to watch for your soul. Isn't this the curse of our time? An unholy sense of independence. So that we don't understand form, structure, organization, authority relationships that God ordained for our spiritual health. And you see it in every realm of society, family, government, and the church. Yes, it is true. The only authority the shepherds of your church have is the authority of Scripture. If we ever teach you something that doesn't accord with Scripture, then you believe the Bible. But we've been tasked by God with the responsibility of watching for souls, and we're to do that with blood earnestness, which means you ought to be a people who make it easy to shepherd you. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. This is what the Bible says. So we are to be serious, earnest shepherds, but you are to be the kind of sheep that is joyful to shepherd. Are you aiming at that? Will you listen? You say, well, I don't know that I see that as as dangerous as you do. That's what I'm talking about in terms of structure and authority and responsibility. You may not see it right now, but if we have Scripture in hand, will you trust the discernment of the people God has called to watch for your soul? Or will you turn a deaf ear and think that you know better? Jesus can warn. Jesus is warning. 
But the only way the disciples can benefit from what he's saying is if they listen. And isn't it interesting in the case of Judas Iscariot that when he betrays his Lord, he does it in conjunction with these spiritual leaders. And then what does he discover? After he has sold out his Lord for some coins, what does he discover? They don't care about him at all. Not only do they not care about Jesus, they don't care about Judas. They don't care about anybody but themselves. These men are exactly what Jesus said they were. But Judas would not listen. Will you listen when the Lord is at work through his church for the guardianship of your soul? Will you listen? So we can't be lost to the influence of, if the Lord has saved us, we're saved forever. Can't be lost to the influence of dangerous teachers, but we can be harmed. And wherever you find this dangerous influence, you're going to find it in doctrine and in character. And Jesus is the model for what it means to disciple people and shepherd them with these influences abounding around us. And you see it in the apostles later on as as to how they care for the church, which means we dare not take lightly the danger. We, We need to listen. Fifth and last application, recognize the difference between good brethren with whom we differ and whitewashed tombs. And what I don't want to do is undo everything I've said tonight. I began the sermon by saying good discipleship includes warning. Good shepherding includes warning. I don't want to undo that. But there's another kind of spiritual danger that's showing up in our time in a massive kind of way. And that is believers who are very uncareful in their attack on fellow believers. Yes, there are Pharisees and Sadducees and evil and adulterous wolves out there. Yes, we need to be warned about that. But everyone who doesn't agree with you is not a wolf. Everyone who doesn't agree with us is not a dangerous influence. You're going to meet with good brothers and sisters who are sincere and honest in their love for Christ, who are submissive to the Scriptures as best they can understand the Word of God, and they're going to come to passages that you and I see in one way, and they're going to see it in a different way. I'm talking about now within the realm of orthodoxy. And because they see that passage differently than I do or you do, does not make them a wolf. We are living in times of incendiary attitudes. I mean, people just flamethrow each other. And we must be careful to remember that we have a new commandment given to us by our Savior, and that is that we love one another. Even as Christ has loved us, so we are called to love one another. Love does not affirm sin. Love does not excuse sin. But love doesn't slander. Love doesn't destroy with its tongue. Love is not suspicious. Love believes the best. And love has the kind of patience to recognize that we may have some things we disagree with one another about on this side of eternity, but that doesn't mean we won't spend eternity together so that we can know a kind of peace and cooperation and joy and prayer for one another even where we have disagreements. Amen? So here is our Lord warning His men. And you will experience that same kind of ministry in this church because We're going to take seriously by the grace of God what our calling is and our responsibility is 
Pray for us to that end, that we would be faithful to warn you where warning is needed. And then I pray for you that you'd be easy to shepherd and that you would listen where those warnings are offered. And I pray that all of us together would be careful in those warnings so that we don't, we don't treat fellow sheep like wolves. But where a wolf needs to be recognized, oh, may we be courageous to identify it. And may we all be wise enough to heed it. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for not only your encouragements to us found in Scripture, but your warnings to us. And in a world that is completely lacking in discernment, sometimes in your churches we find an unwillingness to be discerning. We hear that kind of discernment characterized as being unloving or critical, judgmental, legalistic, when in fact, Lord, it's what you've called us to be. But in the very same world, we see people who have no love for each other, no carefulness about how they characterize each other, tongues with the venom of asps under them, impure things coming out of the mouth, and these things ought not to be so. So Lord, teach us that holy balance, that rightness of recognizing evil, having the courage to identify it, to withstand it at every point, to contend for the once for all delivered to the saints' faith, and at the same time, the graciousness, generosity, the love, not to treat a brother or a sister like a wolf. Only, Lord, you can teach us these things. And so help us to walk by the Spirit and to know these things in our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.